Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. Welcome back to the show. It's been an eventful seven days in the world of China business news. Things have been getting spicy for crypto in the country's southwestern Sichuan province, while there have been some heated disputes over espionage, as well as over wine and even shoes. With all the latest big developments, here's what's been going down in the past week. An FBI agent has admitted in court that he falsely accused a Chinese-American professor of being a spy for the Chinese military. That's according to the Knoxville News Sentinel, a local newspaper whose reporter witnessed the testimony in court. The U.S. law enforcement agent's testimony came out in a U.S. district court during a case involving Huan Ming, a former professor at the University of Tennessee, who had been charged by the U.S. Department of Justice with three counts of wire fraud and three counts of making false statements. During cross-examination, Kujitim Sadiku, an FBI agent who investigated the case, admitted that he presented the university with a false PowerPoint document that labeled Hu as an operative for the Chinese military. According to the same local media report, Sadiku testified, quote, Based on my summary translations, my reports, and my outline, no, Hu wasn't involved in the Chinese military, end quote. After the jury in the case failed to reach a verdict, the judge declared a mistrial. It is not clear whether the case will once again be brought before the court. Embattled telecoms equipment maker Huawei Technologies has extended a recent move into the high-tech microchip sector with a new investment in high-powered lasers as it seeks to lower its dependence on foreign technology. In its latest move into the space, Huawei's fully-owned Hubble Technology Investment on June 2nd invested in RS Laser, whose products are used in the lithography process central to making the microchips that power most modern devices. Following the deal, Hubble now holds 4.76% of RS Laser, making it the company's seventh-largest shareholder. The investment is among 28 by Hubble to date, mostly in various parts of the semiconductor supply chain that includes chip design, manufacturing, and testing. 
Despite manufacturing a big portion of the world's electronics, China must import most of the chips at the heart of such devices. Beijing has been actively working to build up its chip-making capabilities for nearly a decade, making billions of dollars available for companies throughout the supply chain. But to date, those efforts have yielded limited results. Another major cryptocurrency mining hub in China is moving to kick miners out of its territory as part of a sweeping clampdown amid regulatory concerns over the industry's huge energy consumption and potential financial risks. Several documents signed by government agencies in southwest China's Sichuan province circulated online in recent days, outlining plans to shutter all crypto mining sites in the province. One of the documents set June 25th as the deadline to complete inspections and cut power supply to the operations. It listed names of 26 projects that have been inspected. The Sichuan Provincial Energy Bureau told Caixin Friday that the agency was still verifying the authenticity of the documents, but separate industry sources said they are genuine. While things have been looking chaotic for digital currencies, virtual banks have also not been immune to chaos. Hong Kong's eight virtual banks all lost money last year with a combined pre-tax loss of 2.4 billion Hong Kong dollars, or just over 300 million U.S. dollars. That's according to a report by consulting giant KPMG. Standard Chartered back Mox Bank reported the largest loss at nearly 460 million Hong Kong dollars, followed by Livy Bank at roughly 440 million Hong Kong dollars. Ant Bank, Hong Kong, the virtual banking arm of Ant Group, lost the least at around 170 million Hong Kong dollars. The report adds that, quote, unsurprisingly, all the virtual banks are yet to turn around a profit as they remain focused on investing and spending on areas such as office premises, staff costs, and information technology, as well as on marketing activities to grow their customer base, end quote. There's been a lot of commotion when it comes to e-commerce. This past week saw scores of Chinese consumers participate in the 618 online shopping bonanza. Although the event originally was introduced to celebrate the June 18th anniversary of e-commerce giant JD.com, it now stretches on for several weeks and sees several rival businesses, including Alibaba-owned Tmall, participate. This year, JD.com said its own transaction volume exceeded 300 billion yen, or roughly $47 billion, from June 1st to 2 p.m. June 18th. That marks a 13.5% increase year-on-year. The shopping event was a bright spot amid overall weaker consumer spending, which has dragged on China's economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. In May, Retail sales in the country increased 12.4% year-on-year, tracking below the 14% target forecast by economists in a Bloomberg survey. There's more drama brewing down under, and this time it's all about wine. Australia is taking China to the global trade arbiter over anti-dumping duties on Australian wine. Australian Trade Minister Dan Tahan said he had consulted with Australian winemakers and will refer China to the World Trade Organization for Dispute Resolution to vigorously defend their interests. The news comes after Beijing announced in March that it would impose tariffs of more than 200% on Australian wines for five years, thereby formalizing measures that had been in place for months amid an increasingly fraught relationship with Canberra.
The levies, which came into effect in late March, have priced many Australian brands out of the market. The wine tariffs followed similar measures on other Australian goods such as barley and have led many brands to seek out new markets beyond the Asian powerhouse. The British footwear giant behind Dr. Martin's boots is suing Chinese fast fashion unicorn Xi'an for intellectual property theft. The news comes as scrutiny of the notoriously media-shy firm grows. Airware has filed a lawsuit in California against Xi'an's parent company, Hong Kong-based Zoetop Business Company Limited, accusing it of ripping off their designs. The parties are currently thought to be in mediation. The case shows how Xi'an, the export-only clothing platform that has been described as an H&M killer, is receiving new attention as questions swirl about its business ahead of a rumored IPO. According to court filings, Airware is arguing that Zoetop knowingly marketed, distributed, and sold direct and obvious copies of several lines of its Dr. Martin's boots through Xi'an and its sister website Romwe. The lines include Dr. Martin's black leather boots with yellow stitching around the soles, as well as elasticized shoes, sandals, and other products. In some cases, Zoetop's outlets sold the footwear as Martin Boots, a name that Airware contends was a, quote, obvious effort to associate its products with Dr. Martin's, end quote. Let's turn now to Taishin Global Managing Editor Doug Young, who joins us from Beijing. So, Doug, what is big in the news this week? Um, well, Kaiser, today I wanted to actually talk about, uh, you know, there have been lots and lots of Chinese IPOs lately. But uh, I wanted to talk about one that's actually been pretty pretty big and, and it's actually done pretty well. Uh, it's a company called Aihui Shou. And for those of you who don't speak Chinese, Aihui Shou means love recycling. So guess what this company does? They love recycling. <laughs> They're a, a specialist for basically helping people to recycle old cell phones and PCs and, and electronics like that. I think uh, cell phones are a big chunk of what they do. I think it's something like 70%. Uh, but they do other electronics as well. So uh, the company basically did an IPO in New York. They raised $227 million, which isn't too shabby. And guess what? Their stock also did quite well on its uh, first trading day. Stock went up by 23%, and I believe that gives it a market value of about $5 billion. So not too bad for a recycling specialist. Not bad at all. Okay, so this company loves recycling. It's right there in the name. Uh, but what else makes this company really special? Well, what I find personally interesting about this company is that they really are doing – they're, they're providing, I think, a role that could really cause the cell phone recycling market to, to take off. And when you think about it, how many of us have old cell phones sitting around at home that we just don't do anything with? I do. I have at least two or three. Um, you know, And I don't bother recycling them for a few reasons. One is just the hassles. And then another one is just there's all my data on there and I'm sort of like worried like, hey, if I take this to a recycling center, someone, you know, my all oh, my personal pictures and phone numbers going to end up on the internet. And, you know, it's just like for the $50 I'll get for it, why should I bother? But these guys, what they do is they, they have a big offline presence. Um, and so they really are there to sort of 
They'll take your phone. They'll wipe off all the data, which is, you know, one thing that we worry about. And then they'll also recondition them. So if I'm a buyer, often I, I'd be reluctant to buy used electronics because what if they break? You know, I'll never get my money back. It'll just be a big waste of time. These guys are sort of stepping in as sort of a guarantor. You know, they, they come in and they fix up the phone. They let the buyers feel a little more relaxed. And, and the sellers probably would feel a little more relaxed too. So it, it looks like a, you know, it looks like a role that, that, that the market really needs, you know, sort of this big authoritative middleman. And they have a big network of offline shops that are, are basically around, you know, do these kinds of functions. They have more than 700 offline shops and then 23 city level stations, which I think are places where they actually do sort of reconditioning and stuff like that. So it's a... It's an interesting play in that sense. I think it's really providing a role that, you know, the market needs and, and potentially could make a lot of money. Okay, so it looks like there is a lot of demand for this. I've got phones in my drawer, too. Uh, does this mean that Aihui Show looks poised to be a resounding success? Well, of course, uh, only time will tell if they do well. Uh, there are a few sort of, uh, I wouldn't say red flags, but just things that happened that maybe weren't as great as they thought they'd be. Uh, the company did originally, according at least to a Reuters report, have a fundraising target of about $500 million, and they only ultimately raised 227 So that's half of its original target. So that means, you know, maybe there wasn't as much enthusiasm for this offering as they originally uh, thought there was going to be. And then the other thing is, you know, that these guys, like everybody else who's been going public lately, are still losing money. So they've found a lot of, you know, they're, they're bringing in a lot of cash, but they're also spending a lot of cash to make this business work. Uh, so it really will remain to be seen, I would say, you know, over the next two or three years, if these guys can turn a profit. Uh, because again, I think they do something good uh, and there's demand for their services, but can they do it in a way that's profitable? Well, thanks, Doug, for filling us in. Okay. Thanks, Kaiser. All right. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. The Taishin Seneca Business Brief is produced by Kaiser Guo and Nandini Venkata with stories from the staff of Taishin Global. Special thanks to Lisin of Taishin Global. Thanks to Spring and Autumn for the music. Here's stories from Taishin Global, Sub China, Sixth Tone, and many other China-focused media outlets on the new China Stories podcast. And for daily news and views, make sure to subscribe to Sub China Access for the daily newsletter. Find us at subchina.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.